Hello and welcome to 5 Minutes to Midnight. My name is Mohamed El Dufani and with me in this episode is retired British media executive Graham Perry who will shed light on the reasons for the deficient UK media reporting of the Palestine-Israel conflict and the Russian-Ukrainian war. First, to put matters in context, here is some background. The existence of free, accurate and fair media is essential for the proper functioning of a democracy. However, in Britain, mainstream media reporting of domestic politics is rarely, if ever, accurate and unbiased, as was most evident during the 2016 referendum on membership of the European Union and the 2019 general election. But distorted reporting by newspapers, television and radio is at its starkest in the case of foreign conflicts, with the private and publicly funded media equally guilty. In the case of the Palestine-Israel conflict, for example, BBC bias towards Israel and the reasons for this bias have long been the subject of serious academic studies, the best known of which is Greg Philo's and Mike Berry's More Bad News from Israel. In fact, an independent report commissioned by the BBC's own governing body concluded in 2006 that British coverage of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict quote, does not consistently constitute a full and fair account of the conflict but rather, in important respects, presents an incomplete and in that sense misleading picture unquote. The same applies to other British media. An analysis of 400 articles from five British newspapers the Daily Mail, The Guardian, The Independent, The Daily Telegraph and The Times, found that the language they use wrongly suggests a power symmetry between the Israelis and the Palestinians and obscures the realities of Israeli apartheid, colonialism and occupation. The analysis by Nadia Sarhan concludes that, quote, Israeli settlements are seldom described as illegal and international law is rarely mentioned at all, unquote, and that, quote, such slates of hand obscure the extent to which Israel is an outlaw state and undermine the legitimacy of the Palestinian struggle, unquote. In Ukraine, the failure to properly investigate three clusters of issues stand out. First, the origins and far-right ideology of the Azov Battalion, accused by some of being neo-Nazi. In 2014 and 2015, BBC TV's Newsnight programme did investigate the Azov and other far-right Ukrainian groups. But Newsnight is a niche programme that's broadcast relatively late at 10.30pm, so its reach is limited. The second cluster concerns failure to investigate Russian accusations against Ukraine from the period leading up to the Russian invasion, namely that the Ukrainians had committed genocide against Russian speakers in the eastern region of Donbass and that the ruling Zelensky regime is replete with neo-Nazis. The final cluster relates to Russian security concerns which, Moscow says, lay behind the invasion. How legitimate are those concerns? What is the nature of the alleged threat posed by NATO expansion? and how Russian perceptions of NATO are coloured by Russian history. Welcome to our podcast, Graham Perry. Thank you very much, Mohamed. It's very nice to hear your voice again. Thank you. Um, but the subject that we're talking about um, is so vast um, that I, I'm quite fearful about um, be, being able to do it justice. But I want to give it a go, and I want to make a few things clear. Um, I am not an academic. Um, I regard myself as a, a practitioner, a craftsman uh, who has actually dealt with news and, and how it's handled. Um, and I want to approach this issue uh, from the basis of what do we expect of news? What, 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 what is news? And uh, I, I found that a useful way of looking at this goes back to what people often call the five W's. Yeah. You know, who, what, when, where, 
why? These basic questions. Um, to make it less um, prosaic, I'm going to refer to a, a, a chap called Thomas Wilson, who was an English rhetorician in about 1560, who wrote a, a, a treatise on the art of rhetoric. And he said, who, what, and where, by what help, and by whose, why, how, and when do many things disclose? In other words, a news story that covers those key points will probably give you a, a fairly accurate Im impression of what actually happened, the news. And, uh, and associated with that, I would suggest there needs to be, on the part of the journalists, uh, a degree of curiosity and disinterestedness. Uh, people often confuse disinterested and uninterested. Disinterested, of course, means not being biased by self-seeking, impartial, not having a stake in what's actually being reported, disinterested reporting. But a pro the problem is um, that according to the Press Gazette uh, from June 2022, um, who carries an, an analysis of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, they reported a declining trust across the media uh, to the extent of there being only about 34% of people across the UK who felt they could trust the media. And of those who they polled, uh, about 46% avoid reading the news. But interestingly, the Press Gazette didn't really go into why that was the case. Why has trust been declining? Uh, and this is where I'd, I'd like to get a, go through a bit of a, a ramble through what I would call, would call devices to bamboozle. Now, the, these are, if you like, the tools that can be applied by journalists, and I, sus I suggest may, may well be um, the things that people will identify, will be familiar with, um, in terms of how news generally in the UK or, or for foreign news is reported or not reported well. And if you can bear with me, I would like to suggest the following. Um, amongst those devices, you may list out the, the carrying of outright lies, things which simply are not true. Another approach would be selective reporting, which puts together a jigsaw puzzle, uh, puzzle according to a narrative which uh, is desired. It's, in other words, you can construct uh, a narrative which is fake news, but it is put together out of bits and pieces themselves may have some merit, but yeah. it's selective reporting. There's another aspect of this, which is about sowing doubt as to what actually happened. Um, you know, for example, was it the Russians who killed those civilians in Bucha? Um, you know, casting doubt about the, the veracity of what we're hearing, yeah. and people beginning to kind of not be certain of whether they can uh, rely on what they're hearing. Another, another way of doing this is about omission. Um, you know, an event happens, a big march, a big protest march somewhere, maybe on a controversial subject, and it's not reported. So it never really happened. It didn't happen. Or it's given or the impression it's given. It never happened. Another option of doing this would be uh, the repetitive use of obscure or unexplained technical language. To, in order to shape attitudes, to bewilder, to suggest that the person or person speaking have authentic expertise, and maybe even to kind of intimidate the listener to, to a degree, um, a diffidence, or, or inspire a reluctance to ask questions, because they've already been told the story, haven't they, by experts. And examples for this might be quite surprising. Think of, for example, words like the Soviets, the Soviets became a kind of a, a portmanteau term. Yeah. But in fact, the, uh, the word Soviet simply means a council. It was the, the, the basic democratic structure in what was then the Soviet Union. But the Soviets gave it a different complexion. Um, similarly, in the, uh, the case of the kidnapping of the child, uh, Madeleine McCann, you remember when uh, witnesses were being pulled in yeah. by the police, yeah. they, were, they were described as arguidos, now, Arguidos are not simply witnesses or people of interest, but calling them Arguidos, as the press did, gives them a kind of a sinister... It does indeed, yes. Complexion, yeah. Um, 
now uh, uh, another a similar thing like this controversial controversial um the word anti-semite people use this term and have as we know been using this term to uh, abuse and uh, accuse people and um, as if it's a very commonly understood term in fact as we may go into later it, it's far from that um quantitative easing um well quantity printing of money but these are terms which are used and uh, to convey a degree of expertise in a subject which may not be familiar to most people listening i'm going to i'm going to rattle through a few others on of these devices which i think are, are commonly used distraction you know divert attention from important issues flood people with continuous dis- distractions insignificant information or as Aldous Huxley once quoted said um to drown people in a sea of irrelevance noam chomsky had some interesting thoughts on this um he described limiting the spectrum of acceptable opinion but allowing very lively debate within that spectrum yeah yeah to give the impression of debate um false balance giving equal weight to dubious or marginal positions and and saying basically we've covered the the ground as in but climate not necessarily change. can give you a true picture of what the reality is of of a of a situation may be or uh, of a debate is taking place another thing is failing to ask basic questions when interviewers as we've often I'm sure we've all had this when we're listening to an interviewer asking a, a slippery politician and we're saying well why aren't you asking this particular question I mean, surely it's obvious but it doesn't get asked um what i would also describe as snippet reporting giving the impression of, of coverage um but without any follow through a very simple example of this was um for example a school bus took an unusual route to school and uh, went under a bridge which ripped off the top of the bus injuring some children but uh we never heard anything else after that right certainly never did and i thought i felt very frustrated that well a story was reported why what what then why did why did the bus driver take a different route that that day the blurring of news and opinion where we hear interviewers uh, inviting fellow journalists to say to, to comment and by saying things like what can we expect to hear from a speech which hasn't been delivered yet yeah, or yeah. can you give us a sense of what so so is speaking about you know um it, it's it's not news hasn't actually happened it, it it's the opinion of the, the journalist about to report on the event um punditry you know who decides whose faces are given a platform and, and are we to regard their deliberations as partisan advocacy or expert factual advice um i think i'll end very shortly on this little list of um by suggesting the unchallenged airing of outright denials of facts you know for example there were no parties in downing street russian forces do not target civilian infrastructure in ukraine you know these are platformed they're aired but are they actually challenged directly at the time um and lastly on this list i would use the the idea of infotainment you know uh, 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 brave reporters battling against the snowstorms and looking as if they're actually battling their way up everest or um uh, uh talking heads based abroad in kiev as they were in kiev for example um uh, one of whom at one stage uh, in, was saying that later in the show somebody <laughs> else would be appearing Yeah. So the news program about a, a, a crucially important uh, uh, happening uh, conceived of as a show. So that's the kind of thing which I think people will have encountered uh, and may occasionally spark up about. Now I don't um I don't claim that this is exhaustive by any standards but there's certainly things which have struck me. Which brings us on to kind of the questions that you're asking uh Mohammed um what's happening here um uh the journalistic ethos which allows all this to happen well i would suggest a number of possible options um uh, the training ground 
for journalists. Um, the Press Gazette, again, in 2020, reported that um, in uh, 2020, uh, 265 uh, outlets, uh, papers, had shut down since 2005, and that in 2019, the press, the local press, represented only about 31% of the figures which had been around in 2007, um, and stated that most local journalism was no longer written by separate editorial teams associated with a specific title. In other words, they were relying on what we often, sadly, call content writers, agencies to fill the, to fill the space in the, the papers without necessarily any direct contact or familiarity with the local area. Um, another problem which I have heard about from fellow uh, ex-BBC people um, who are involved in the training of journalists speaks about their concerns about the educational or experiential caliber of trainees, um, by which they often speak about um, the, literally the um, the poor vocabulary of some of those who are they are training, um, constructing sentences where the the trainers simply can't make head or tail of what the person is trying to say. Um, that may be a factor as well. But similarly, um, the working conditions and the ethos on outlets, whether they be newspapers or, or, or local radio, is also important. I have been trying to find out, for example, what is the percentage of journalistic staff on all grades within the BBC who are currently on temporary or short-term contracts. Um, I found this very difficult, uh, and, and sadly, um, uh, the NUJ, National Union of Journalists, who I contacted about this, themselves, to my surprise, do not keep this information. But there has certainly been a, a move away from having journalists on permanent contracts. And of course, what this breeds, unfortunately, is um, a desire by those on temporary contracts to be compliant. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they, are, they clearly want to have a job. They want to please their, uh, their masters, if you like. Um, and this is, I suspect, and I say, I, I say this without hard evidence, but I do suspect that this is beginning to have an effect on the, the quality of the journalists who are actually taking part in uh, the national discussion, the, there is a danger of them becoming essentially hacks, a uh, bit of a, uh, a derogatory term, but somebody who is basically told to write an article in a particular way about a particular subject um, in, in a certain manner. Um, that is not the kind of thing that we might normally associate with feisty, independent-minded journalists. So another aspect of uh, the effect on uh, the journalistic environment is how are any transgression, uh, bad reporting, bad practices, how are they sanctioned? Um, is it possible that bad reporting is by people who are just getting away with it? Now, we have a bit of a problem in it with our general culture at the moment, don't we? Politically, where we, we have been seeing examples of senior figures getting away with transgression. But the problem which many people face is, well, what do you do about it? How can um, enforcement of uh, good behavior, good practices be, be uh, brought about? And because nobody knows, or very few people have any clear idea to whom they should address their concerns about uh, for example, a bad report, it kind of gen engenders a, a widespread feeling of disempowerment uh, and maybe an acceptance by people that, you know, maybe mediocre um, coverage is okay and normal. Why make a fuss about it? Um, now, the problem with a lot of what I've just been saying, which I'm sure will have occurred to you, is, well, who can prove any of this? Where's the evidence? for the kind of habits and practices that I've just been uh, alluding to. Um, where is 
there are examples of um, egregious reporting collected. Now, you and I will be familiar with um, uh, the old BBC monitoring organization, yeah. which I would say yeah. was um, uh, a disinterested body which was reporting foreign media um, based not on any particular desire to create a narrative, but basically what that media was saying. Now, that body has essentially been um, uh, majorly modified. And as far as I'm aware, does not indulge in that particular practice of uh, 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 wide-scale monitoring of, of the media. And I'm not aware of anybody in the UK which um, collects this kind of information in a disinterested way, which is readily accessible to the public. Now, what I mean by this is uh, there may well be bodies which monitor the media on behalf of commercial interest because they want to see how uh, that particular media handles stories and whether it's a suitable place for them to place their advertising. But in terms of monitoring the quality of, of the media, I'm not aware of any body which does that on behalf of the public at large. Um, Certainly not in a comprehensive way, no. Pardon me? Not in a comprehensive way. I mean, I'm with you on that one. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, the other concern about this is would the public care? Would the, would the public care? Because let's face it, most people are not uh, expert monitors and, uh, and, or, or concern themselves with um, kind of journalistic debates about whether... Um, uh, we should refer to terrorists or freedom fighters, the kind of debates that happen in, in newsrooms. But there is something serious um, which is involved here, which is about the authenticity of the information available to people, particularly, as you've uh, alluded to, on uh, pub uh, uh, public service broadcasting, where there is a need for people to have reliable information in order to make sensible, informed choices. So on that score, I was struggling to know how to get into this. And, um, and I decided that I wanted to start by making reference to an article that was written uh, by Mark Damaser, who was former controller of Radio 4 in the Prospect magazine in April 2019. He, in this article, uh, referred to many concerns about the BBC's journalism, and, and I broadly uh, uh, recognized the concerns that he was expressing. They validated many of my own. And um, I started to go into this in some detail. Now, concerns about journalism are not new at all, um, and I also want to refer you to uh, uh, the book by Martin Bell, um, war and the death of news, in which he said that news as we have hitherto known it has died and been laid to rest. And he said that the 24-hour news cycle had created journalism and news act. Something was going amiss, and a number of people have been alluding to it. Um, uh, now, in his article, Damaser, um, was reflecting on things like the impact of social media and declining trust in the BBC handling of news. And he chose to focus, in particular, on the BBC's coverage of Brexit, which I would suggest is questionable, the reasons that we'll come on to a little bit later. But in his article, he uh, started to say things which began to give me nagging doubts as to why... Why was this article written? For whom was it written? Had it been commissioned? Uh, what was the audience uh, it was addressing? And who, who was it trying to convince? And of what? So, in the article, for example, he speaks about attending uh, an editorial conference, which was chaired by Fran Unsworth. Uh, and during the, the conference, with all these editorial uh, people from across the BBC, um, he says... Um, he said that there is neither time for editorial chat 
nor for comparing the BBC's coverage to anybody else's, and nothing that looks like an editorial high command structure dictating how agendas for individual programs should be shaped or the line of questioning to be pursued. Which struck mm -hmm. me as odd because he had been or was at the time the controller of Radio 4, which begs the question, well, what, what does the controller actually control? Indeed, yes. Yeah. Um, and another thing which um, I found very, you know, raised alarm bells was where he said the following. He said, oddly, it's not only outsiders to new broadcasting house who imagine that the organization is capable of enforcing an editorial position. One famous BBC presenter I spoke to recently thought there was a central line running from the editorial Mandarin class to the programs. It is not so. Now, they were quite definitive words by uh, Mark Lamazer. However, we know very clearly from the Dyson report that was uh, conducted into the handling of this infamous interview with uh, Princess Diana, that in fact there were serious concerns about there being um, an editorial uh, command structure. Um, and at the end of his report, uh, what uh, Lord, Lord Dyson had said was the following. Um, he didn't know, he wasn't able to determine uh, who had issued the official line um, on how the BBC was to not cover the investigation into Martin Bashir's handling of the uh, Princess Diana story. Um, now, that's worrying because the, that report indicated, I think, um, in a shocking way, that the BBC, which had prided itself on um, truthfulness and transparency, had actually engaged, and this is stated very clearly in uh, the report, in a cover-up. Um, that is clearly something which is having an effect or had an effect on the trust that people have placed in that organization. Now, there are many subsequent actions that were taken by the BBC, basically saying that it overhauled all kinds of processes, complaints, processes, and what have you, and everything is, everything is fine. But I wonder, um, if we start to look at the coverage of um, key stories that we've also uh, alluded to, such as um, the situation in Palestine, um, or the, 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 the war in Ukraine, how effectively are public service broadcasters handling these stories? Um, is it uh, likely that they're covering them um, in a dispassionate, disinterested way? Um, it's problematic. And I would like, again, to refer to an example on the BBC, uh, not specifically relating to Palestine, um, but, uh, but in a way which illustrates how it is quite possible that um, the way in which uh, a controversial issue is reported might well be uh, subject to what I would call gossamer levers, um, uh, chains of command which are not always discernible. And what I would refer you to is um, an interview that was conducted on Newsnight on the 26th of March in 2018. Now, this interview uh, took place on the day of a massive um, demonstration outside Parliament um, by um, members of the Jewish community protesting at um, uh, alleged anti-Semitism in the, the, the Labour Party. And in the interview on Newsnight, Emily Maitland was interviewing uh, the MP, Louise Elman, uh, who was a, a fairly prominent uh, spokesperson on behalf of uh, the Jewish community. The problem I felt with the interview was that 
during it, uh, uh, Ms. Elman repeatedly referred to the term anti-Semitism, almost robotically, uh, and, and, and uh, allegations of anti-Semitism against various Labour Party members, um, but without once defining what that meant or giving it a, a solid example of um, what uh, 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 the, that person's actions had been such that it constituted an anti-Semitic action. Um, now, unfortunately, there were there was no other participant. There was no other balancing points. And that interview gave the impression that Louise Elman was representing the views of the entire Jewish community. But more worrying, um, it continued to, to use this term of, of uh, anti-Semitic behavior or the, the accusation of anti-Semitism in a way which was left very nebulous and, and badly defined. It didn't inform uh, people about what was really at stake. Um, I was very concerned about this. And I actually uh, wrote to the editorial of, of um, uh, the, the editor for editorial policy in the group, uh, to complain about this. And in particular, how I felt uh, it was the way the interview was conducted reached the BBP's editorial guidelines. Um, unfortunately, I never had a reply. I never heard back from that um, uh, letter, that email. Quite typical, um, unfortunately. It, it, yes. Um, but what I'm trying to kind of suggest here is that um, it seems to me bizarre that in his own article um, concerning the BBC's uh, uh, editorial uh, difficulties, Mark Damaza had focused on Brexit, which was blindingly obvious because every other program was about it. But at the same time, there were numerous reports and accounts of the anti-Semitism taking place, which he did not uh, view it as being in any way problematic. Um, I suggest that is a, a real problem. Um, in okay. terms of the coverage of the Ukraine uh, war, um, I, th I think in, in your summary, you've given an examples of issues which have not been reported. Um, uh, now, you know, I don't know about you, Mohammed, but uh, I find that there has been a dearth of um, programs like uh, Panorama and Dispatches and um, particular focused documentaries on, on big subjects. Um, and amongst those subjects right now, the ideal candidate for such a program would be such things as the Azov Battalion, the claims of genocide in, in the Donbass. Why has there not been a dedicated team in investigating these issues on the ground? Now, of course, is in that war zone, it's clearly difficult. It's, it's, whether it's because uh, the Russian forces will not allow uh, journalists in because they prefer to use their own journalists there, and that's where they're supposed to be dependent on uh, their reporting, it, it's difficult to judge. But the, I think simply based on what we hear from the Western media, the Western media I'm speaking about, um, we do not really get uh, the nuts and bolts of uh, what is taking place on the ground. Yes, we get a lot of um, uh, video reports, and I suspect overall we get as faithful a picture of what's happening uh, in terms of the big events, the uh, massacres, the attacks on infrastructure and the like, that uh, uh, we can. Because unlike our colleagues in, um, in Russia, we are surrounded by mavericks and people who use WhatsApp and TikTok and uh, people who go in trying to make a reputation for themselves. Um, uh, on the ground and take huge risks with freelancers. And from this diverse uh, swirl of, of information, we're likely to get as clear a, a picture of what is happening as possible, um, as is possible. Uh, and if people then choose not to believe accounts of, for example, um, 
Russian atrocities, alleged Russian atrocities in Bucha or elsewhere. Um, is it because they simply prefer to listen to the sources that they agree with? Or is it because they have some other source of information not available to, to the rest of them? Um, I don't know. Um, but I do think that, uh, that the absence of uh, it, uh, reporting uh, documentaries on the big themes arising from the uh, Ukraine war is a great uh, loss. Um, and I don't think that having these, um, uh, I hate to call it, shows staged from with nice Kiev backdrop with um, uh, UK presenters talking against the cupolas of um, cathedrals. I don't think that cuts it in terms of giving uh, authenticity to the reporting. Well, you, uh, just a couple of things. You mentioned Mark Damaser and uh, his questioning of the reporting of, of Brexit while not mentioning mm. uh, anti-Semitism. That strikes me as one of the key problems when it comes to reporting on the Middle East, in particular where Israel is involved, that certain accounts are taken as a given and therefore not mentioned. So in the BBC online in particular, but also on radio and TV, the Israeli account more often than not is accepted as a given and it's not questioned. The reporters, when they interview Israeli officials uh, and military figures, they, do, they ask the most rudimentary questions, but they do not challenge them on the major themes that they are talking about. Uh, in the news, certainly, it gives the impression, particularly to people who are not regular followers of events in the Middle East, it gives the impression that uh, this is the, the fact, this is the, uh, the, how things are, and therefore we'll move on to talk about terrorism or the Palestinian failures here or there. Yes. In the case of Ukraine, I think you, 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 you handled it you hit the nail on the head, there is no investigative reporting. Uh, there are accounts that you find from uh, the BBC and, and the ITV, ITN and, and others, which you can get from, uh, you know, umpteen other sources, news agencies, uh, some reputable social media, etc., about what's happening. But where is the investigation, you know, about the crucial issues that I mentioned in the... Uh, in the uh, in the intro, uh, in the, the Azov, or whether are they neo Nazis? Even if they are, I mean, are they big enough actually to matter? Uh, and th things like uh, the Russian allegations of massacres, etc. Yes, there is a security problem when it comes to accessing Ukraine in the present circumstances. But you could argue that the security aspect is no greater than the one that is taken when uh, the BBC and uh, ITN send their reporters to war zones where they could be shelled and uh, blown up at any moment. Certainly yes. investigating the themes of, as of, uh, the, the uh, alleged allegations of massacres, and also the Russian, Russia's uh, security concerns, as they put it, uh, which, uh, which lay behind the... Uh, the, the invasion of Ukraine, uh, according to Moscow. Uh, you know, well, I've seen sort of reports that featured ambassadors here and there who, who touched on the subject, but there's nothing really impartial or in-depth. That's so right. This That's is right. extremely worrying, and I don't think it actually uh, helps boost the public confidence in the media. Well, that, I, I agree. And... Um, uh, and, and, and again, if you just dwell for a moment on your concern about the role of public service broadcasting, providing reliable information, it's so crucial. Um, and there is without a doubt um, a, a problem in this area now, um, which has been alluded to by, by several, several people. Peter Roborn, um, of course, is, uh, in, in his book, The Assault on Truth, uh, describes this at some length. Uh, he has serious concerns about there being something seriously rotten at the heart of uh, UK journalism. 
Now, whether it's for some of the reasons that, you know, the, the short-term contract, the hacks, uh, uh, the, the, the caliber of the people involved in, in, in doing journalism, um, just providing content, um, is debatable, it's, but it's, it's potentially a factor. But I think people can, can observe um, who have any even passing acquaintance with the events, for example, in the Middle East, that the full background to uh, uh, what's happening in Israel uh, and, and, and Gaza is not being covered. So, for example, uh, I was struck just the, the other day when there was a report on the ticker tape at the bottom of uh, the screen which referred to um, a Palestinian gunman shooting up some people somewhere near the, willing, the, the Wailing Wall. But there was no great reporting of the fact of the, the bombing uh, of Gaza, which had killed far more people. Uh, and more importantly, there is virtually no uh, reference to, well, why is this happening? This is snippet reporting, yeah, giving, yeah. The impression, giving the impression that uh, we're, co we're covering the story, but without any depth, without any you know, allusion to the illegality of um, uh, the, the, the Israeli settlements or the, um, the, the routine um, the breaches of international law, which, of course, the Israelis deny. Um, and, of course, absolutely no discussion about the distinction between Zionism and the Jewish faith. Indeed, yes. Um, if I, if I can just briefly bore you with this, I, I, I translated a book by a, a, a Russian, a, a German uh, writer called Rolf Verlega, who I got to know um, uh, about a year or so ago. Sadly, he's passed away since. But he wrote a book called um, Israel's Errant Path, and that's my working title, um, in which he basically uh, describes how um, his faith, um, of Judaism, he was brought up as a, as a, a very orthodox Jew in Germany, his, his faith had been hijacked by political Zionism. Um, and it was going down the wrong road. It was leading towards uh, all kinds of disaster and, and misery, which we witness uh, year after year, but it's not addressed. Um, and it, it is, going back to what I was saying earlier about um, how it does appear to be the case that there are uh, levers, there, there is um, a, a certain direct diktat, which is possible for the BBC in particular to bring about, about how a story should be covered or not covered, as was the case with uh, the Dyson report, revealed in the Dyson report, it seems that something similar must be taking place with regard to the coverage of the controversial something of uh, Israel and Palestine. Um, I can find no other explanation for uh, the, the paucity of information about uh, the background uh, to help people understand the conflict uh, and where it's heading. Um, yeah. And it may well be a cowardice on the part of senior editors about uh, tackling that subject for fear of huge complaints and the kind of um, sledging that was meted out to um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn over his alleged anti-Semitism. Uh, but it, it, it seems to have created an environment where it becomes almost improper to uh, address that subject in, in an open, honest, and disinterested way. Um, something which, um, uh, again, uh, Martin Bell speaks of uh, as being extremely important, the need to confront reality head on and, and just, just not to, to indulge in self-censorship, which is possibly another thing which uh, journalists are, are currently uh, guilty of. Um, he, said that, he said that good taste censorship falsifies reality. And that it takes courage not to censor, to look reality in the face unflinchingly and to show things as they are. Um, I think a lot of people would welcome that. Um, uh, I would also refer people to a, a book by a writer called Peter Pomeranko, 
who wrote a book called uh, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, about his experiences working as a journalist in Russia, where, sadly, just to say, uh, some of the practices which he describes where, you know, uh, protest is kind of normalized, it's kind of made to appear authentic, but actually it's completely ineffectual. A lot of these things, these practices, I would suggest are being deployed in some of our own media outlets, yeah. worrying. Yes. Um, uh, so we need to be very alert to this because, uh, again, using, using this phrase by Peter Oberon, if there really is something in British media discourse, then we have to do something about it. So what can we do? Who do we complain to? If you want to complain, for example, about uh, the current BBC's editorial standards, how would most people know how to go about that? Uh, what's the email address that you should contact, the phone number, the person in charge? Um, in his book, Oborn, at the end, um, suggests basically that if we, want, if we believe in truth, in objective truth, and we value that, and we want integrity to be restored to our journalism, then people, ordinary people, have to take action. And he suggests seven uh, options that, for people to do this, um, all of which boil down to kind of basically contacting your MP, uh, making a complaint, uh, uh, being a whistleblower, but above all, not being silent about it and letting uh, newspapers get away with it. Um, or, or any outlet can complain. But how do we do that? And where should we turn? I would suggest that uh, we all need to be more alert. I think, yeah, that is very true. I mean, from my own experience, uh, self-censorship and cowardice are among the major mm -hmm. factors for, for deficient reporting, in particular uh, where Israel is concerned. Uh, there is a, a, a kind of absolute fear that saying something, even if it, you know, where it's undeniable and 100% true and verifiable, that saying it would trigger an awful lot of complaints, orchestrated, organized uh, compl complaints and campaigns that would tie down an awful lot of people for quite a long time. That yes, is not yes. an, that's an explanation, but it's certainly not an excuse. And as a public broadcaster, the BBC, which is funded by taxpayers, has a duty to actually deal with this kind of thing in a rational way and not be cowered by it. But that's unfortunately not happening. I, com I completely agree with you. Um, and if I could if just refer back to my, um, the, the author, uh, Rolf Elega, who... Uh, I'm so it's so sad that he passed away. Um, uh, quite a young man, but he was a very very um, uh, intelligent um, man. Yeah. Um, he was a neuroscientist based in northern Germany, um, clearly Jewish, um, and tackled this subject from within Germany. Which, if you if you think historically, you know, it's a, it's a big thing, a big issue. But basically, he describes the term anti-Semitism as incomprehensible. And I'll, I'll explain why. Um, he basically dissects it. And he reminds us, as most people are not aware by the way of this, um, anti-Semitism takes its roots from Shem, who was one of biblical Noah's three sons, from whom eventually, generation after generation after generation, was descended Abraham, who, as you know, is regarded as the patriarch of both Jews and Arabs. And, and Rolf Belega basically suggests, therefore, the Israeli soldiers and settlers and politicians who routinely demean, harass, or shoot Palestinians, who steal their land, who bulldoze their homes, they are acting out of hatred for the race of Shem and are therefore anti-Semitic, aren't they? Absolutely. Well, uh, now, to have that kind of um, discussion um, is challenging for sure, but it, it, it reminds people, or would remind people, again, as people will not be fully aware, most people, 
that the, the very term anti-Semitism was only coined in the late 19th century by German and Austrian um, uh, pol polemicists uh, who wanted to kind of give some kind of scientific gloss uh, to what was essentially nothing more than uh, the hatred of Jews, yeah. Judenhass, yeah. the hatred of Jews. That has all been blurred um, uh, to, con to confuse people between the distinction between the Jewish faith and what is now the current version of Zionism. And I say current version because the earlier, the, the originating version, by, by Zionism founders was very different in outlook and concept. It, it really did hope for um, uh, a cooperation and understanding between the Palestinian Arabs and the Jewish incomers, for sure. And of course, subsequently, um, it became very much a, a case of um, the Zionism uh, representing the idea of the, the Israeli national state for Jews and the Arabs, the Arab population, Palestinians, being increasingly marginalized. And uh, as we've seen in recent uh, months and years, um, subject to what can only be described as apartheid. Um, so this kind of discussion really should be taking place in the mainstream media. Um, and we must beg the question of why that is not happening. Yeah, and the, uh, the, ironically you'll find the uh, discussions similar to that taking place in some of the Israeli media, uh, in Haaretz and even in some of the right-wing media, where yes. the British and the American media are actually too afraid to even mention. That's it. There are a couple of uh, questions, unfortunately they both relate to the BBC, which I'd like you uh, opinion about. The first is the, uh, the, the statistics. I mean, the BBC's mission is to inform, educate and entertain. And it certainly does the entertaining. Uh, but on the informing and to a much lesser extent educating, they're very much nowadays guided by statistics. So they look at the audience figures uh, whether for TV or radio, and in particular for online. And if something doesn't have uh, high uh, viewing figures or high reading figures, then it's ditched. So yeah. it, leadership in that sense of educating the public or explaining to the public why certain matters should be of interest to them, and that, uh, you know, whether domestic or international, seems to be absent because the BBC has begun to behave for a while now like its commercial rivals, guided by the figures, uh, but whereas the commercial rivals do it for a reason, advertising, uh, yes. you know, uh, the BBC has no, no real reason other than to basically mimic its rivals. Uh, the other yeah. is, is funding. It's hard to talk about the BBC without talking about funding. It is taxpayer funded and the government decides what it gets. Do you think that this is a main factor or major factor in, uh, in, in, in it sort of skirting certain issues in case it, it uh, negatively impacts its funding? Uh, in short, yes, I do. Um, uh, for example, um, uh, the chairman of the BBC, uh, Richard Sharp, um, is appointed, as you, again, maybe many people aren't aware of this, how the chairman of the BBC is appointed. Um, he doesn't go through a, a recruitment process as, not, as ordinary mortals. He is appointed essentially by the Privy Council. Um, who makes recommendations um, to uh, appoint the chairman of the board of, of governors of the BBC. And um, so he, he is a kind of a, a, a figure who um, presides over the whole organization. He is the editor-in-chief. He has also donated 
uh, I understand over £400,000 uh, to the Conservative Party. Um, his role in determining the shape of the organisation is, is clearly very important. Um, uh, similarly, the new, um, uh, or I say new, relatively new, Director General, Tim Davey, um, well, I mean, it is interesting that he himself uh, was chairman of uh, the Hammersmith uh, branch of the Conservative Party in the 90s and actually stood um, to be a councillor for Hammersmith um, in 1993 and 1994. Um, now, I mean, these facts must have some bearing unless we simply say, well, we, will, we won't take this into account. But in terms of the shape of the organization and in whose interest, what, whose interests uh, are being secured, these are, in, these are interesting factors in terms of the uh, allegiances and, and connections of the leading figures within the organization. So uh, following the Dyson report, Tim Davies um, spoke about the, all the various changes to BBC's policies and practices that were brought about as a result of the shock to the system, so that everything is okay now, you understand. It's all been done. But he said that today's BBC emphasizes the importance of the need for a culture of compliance. <laughs> this is actually written down, the cul a culture of compliance. Now, I think this is primarily relating to a compliance to producers or editorial guidelines. But at a deeper level, it basically means we expect journalists to comply and to produce what we want them to produce, which is not quite the same as having a group of talented individual, independently minded individuals uh, producing creative work uninhibited by constraints of what they're allowed to think about or allowed to write about. Um, and clearly, at this time, if it is true that uh, funding is continuing to be squeezed um, to produce, for example, a workforce of temporary contracts or short-term contract, short contracts or attachments, where individuals are doing those contracts are clearly hopeful of getting full-time employment, because it can be rough out there, as we all know. Um, but those people are unlikely to raise too many complaints about what they're being asked to do. Um, and it reminds me of a quote from uh, George Orwell, who says that, you know, most journalists are actually hacks, tired hacks, who are told, you know, what to write about, how to write about it, and what they produce is, in any case, only a rough copy to be chopped about by censors. Uh, for the words, for censors, uh, substitute the word editors. Um, so that's the kind of environment which I, I suspect many of our journalistic colleagues are, are now struggling in or, or struggling with. Um, and, you know, we don't have clear information, as I mentioned early on, but well, what the percentages of temporary contracts or what, how, um, how secure are journalists in their, in their jobs? Because if you create within the BBC, a little bit akin to the internal market ideas, but if you create um, a kind of a gig type economy or precarious working conditions, you're going to get people who are more, more likely to comply and do what they're told rather than ask difficult questions. That's very true, and it's very sad for, for the British media and for British journalists as a whole that this is, uh, uh, seems to be getting more of a problem rather than being uh, on the periphery of, of the media. Yeah, so, and, and I think we have to accept that the, those journalists working in those environments um, they themselves will have to take some of the flack uh, in terms of dealing with the situation because there will be no fairy godmothers yeah, to, yeah. to deal with this. And as we used to say, um, 
uh, then you Jay would often say that um, you know a chapel, uh, which is the basic NUJ structure, as you know, uh, a chapel is only as strong as its members, uh, and if its members are not prepared to uh, get themselves organised and, and uh, complain or, or, or stand up against unethical practices, as was the case um, uh, during the, um, as was revealed by the Dyson report, then things will get worse. But similarly, uh, leading organisations like the NUJ or like um, staff representatives in, in the bill, in the, the organisation, the BBC, they have to show some leadership too about what really matters uh, and in terms of the ethos and, uh, you know, uh, standards which they themselves want to support and endorse and encourage journalists to follow. Um, so I don't think it's completely hopeless, but it's, 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 um, it does require, as Peter Oborn uh, suggests at the end of his book, it does require people actually pulling their fingers out and doing something about it, actually making the complaints, making the stand, and upholding a belief in honest, factual reporting, rather than this um, daily, uh, uh, bland, um, non-committal, fake balance, um, safe uh, journalism that we seem to be becoming very accustomed to. You summed it up very well. Thank you very much, Graham. Uh, that was retired British media executive Graham Perry talking to me, Mohammed Eldafani, on Five Minutes to Midnight about the deficiencies of British media reporting of the Palestine-Israel conflict, the Ukrainian-Russian war and other issues. Thank you very much, Graham. It's a pleasure, Mohammed. Thanks for the opportunity.